Alison. Hello there, Sarah. So France took a significant step this week towards banning conversion therapy for gay and trans people. MPs voted unanimously on the first reading of a bill to criminalize it. Wow, unanimous. That's, mm. that's impressive. Um, the UN has described conversion therapy as a form of torture. It's crazy to think it's still going on today. It is, isn't it? Because uh, it, it just sounds medieval. I mean, the idea that you can actually modify or think that you can modify someone's sexual orientation or gender identity through isolating them or ostracizing them from society or using things like shock therapy. Mm. Um, but the fact is some people and institutions do still believe that being homosexual or transgender is unnatural, uh, that it's a passing phase or disease and that you can cure it. Mm. So the bill does still need to get through the Senate, so it's not a done deal. But if it is passed, it would make conversion therapy a crime and punishable by up to three years in prison and €45,000 fines. Wow. So um, who's been pushing this bill? It was introduced by two MPs. One is from the ruling uh, La Reine Party, Macron's party, and the other is from the far-left France Unbowed. They say they've identified around 100 recent cases of conversion therapy in France and that it's a growing phenomenon. Now, in some ways, perhaps it's a backlash to the kind of progress that ironically has been made by the LGBT plus community over the last decade or so. Uh, yeah, with, you know, passing of same-sex marriage or legislation banning homophobia and medically assisted procreation for lesbian couples, all these inroads for rights. Yeah, all of this is a total anathema, of course, for some, albeit small sections of French society. I met one man on the receiving end of this kind of conversion therapy. He's called Benoit Bert, 32 years old. Uh, he co-founded a collective called Rien à Guérir, Nothing to Heal, uh, which has been campaigning very hard alongside lawmakers to get conversion therapy criminalised in France. Now, between the age of 15 and 18, his very devout Catholic parents sent him to conversion camps in a bid to cure him. Not only did it not work, unsurprisingly, it left him scarred. I grew up in a Catholic family, very uh, religious, but not a fundamentalist people of uh, Catholic religion. And by the age of 10, 11, I started to feel same-sex attraction. And uh, I knew my family wouldn't allow me to feel that. For them, the perception of uh, homosexuality was perversion. So I decided to hide it, but at the age of 15, I couldn't hide it anymore. I did my coming out, but in a very wild way. I just said to my mother that, uh, yeah, I had those attractions. She reacted in a very weird way, actually. She asked me two questions, very representative of what they were thinking. My mother asked me if I was touched by a priest. First question. And then she asked me if I had same-sex sexual activities which at 15 I answered by no. But those questions just show how much my parents felt that homosexuality was a kind of a disease you catch, like something bad from the exterior. It's not part of your identity. So she tried to be reassurant and she told me, well, don't worry, this is teenagehood. Uh, you will change. You're discovering your body and we will help you, obviously. It meant we will help you to get away from it because they thought that if I would embrace the homosexual lifestyle, as they would call it at that time, I would be deeply unhappy. 
A few weeks later, they enrolled their son on a camp run by the charismatic Catholic community known as the Beatitude. The retreats that they organise are called Guérison de Blessures Profondes, the healing of deep wounds. I was forced to go to sessions, psycho-spiritual sessions, retreats. I was going there some weekends or weeks during holidays. They were run by uh, religious people, people involved in the community, sometimes doctors and people who were experts on those subjects. That's the way they were representing themselves. I was 15, I trusted my parents, those people felt important, so I just went there. And so what happened? The place is a very far away place, like in the monasteries or castles, like old places uh, far away from towns. Um, you feel disconnected to your life and uh, you're living kind of the life of a monk or a sister, I would say. Uh, you don't eat much, you uh, sleep in cells like the monk and sister cells and you are not allowed to speak to other people there. And obviously you have praying moments, you have uh, Bible studies and uh, teaching. But the thing that was extremely rough was uh, meeting with uh, spiritual guides or fathers. And in those guiding spiritual session, you're one-to-one -one with a person. There are theories that you are deeply heterosexual and homosexuality is just a layer of, of something dirty that you have to clean. And more and more the session happens and the question happens. They are subtly putting some seeds of homophobia in you by showing you homosexuality as something extremely dirty, as a, something degrading. They were saying like, you don't want to end up like that. This is against nature. They basically teach you to become homophobes against yourself. Is that how you ended up feeling? Absolutely. I mean, I was uh, frozen, totally scared, unable to meet people in real life because my idea of homosexuality was so broken and dirty that I, I was feeling that I would be raped or, I don't know, by people like that. So much I was... Uh, influenced by all the homophobia I was uh, exposed. But basically, I, I started to listen my heart a little bit more. I, I remember I was 18 and I was like thinking I need to meet people that are living homosexuality, people that are concerned by the subject. And that's really helped me to understand that what I've been told was massive bullshit. And that's how I ended up as well meeting my uh, first uh, love, who lasted uh, six years. So when I embraced this relationship, I totally understood that um, homosexuality is not uh, against nature. Everything felt natural to me and simple and I felt becoming myself for the first time. I felt happy and so it was like a sheet being torn in front of my eyes, like revelation. What do your parents think now of what they made you go through? I think they are horrified and they are very ashamed. My parents understood that what they did was wrong and they apologized to me and publicly at the television. So how old were you when that happened? I think they changed when I was uh, 23 or something like that. So it takes time and it took time as well because I had to rebuild myself, first of all. And I think as well the pedophilia abuses in the church really made them think. They saw the church being broken and they started to question something, an institution that they never questioned before. 
I think they kind of had a wake-up moment. So having gone public with his parents' backing, it's been a lot easier for Benoit Bert to speak out and openly campaign to end conversion therapy. His collective has been gathering data on cases and has managed to get an amendment into the bill so that they along with other associations, would be able to prosecute as civil parties in the courts when victims feel that they don't want to go it alone. For the time being, though, it's very difficult to get conversion therapy cases to court, even when the alleged perpetrators, like uh, a recent case of a psychotherapist who was proposing highly dangerous intrauterine therapy, had been filmed using hidden cameras. We tried to alert authorities, but we didn't succeed to prosecute the person. And in fact, that person prosecuted us for defamation. So it shows how broken can sometimes be the law and how much we need that law to define precisely all the practices and to give the tools to victims to understand that what happened to them is abuse, sometimes torture, and they can sue. When you've been a victim of conversion therapy, it takes years to understand that you've been through something not normal. We know that conversion therapy is going on in many countries around the world. Is there anything that you would say is kind of French-specific? Obviously, every country has its specificities. In the US, they do not hide. In France, because we are in a local country and the French motto is uh, equality, fraternity and freedom. So obviously it's not well seen to try to cure homosexuality. So people who would suggest and practice those abuses, they would do that discreetly. So perhaps there is more secrecy in France than, for example, in the US? Absolutely, that's for sure. The specificity of France is also how efficient the campaign was. I mean, the law is not voted, so I won't claim victory too soon. But uh, we succeed to really bring political attention. And what really moved me this week when I was in the parliament is that we succeed something that never happened in France history before. All the political party, all of them, from right to left to center to extreme left and even extreme right, voted anonymously against conversion therapy. This is the first LGBT-related law in France that brings unanimity in France. So we really felt success by doing that, and history happened. That historic cross-party success was down to a lot of hard work by politicians and the collective, lots of lobbying of medical and religious institutions. But perhaps crucially, they managed to get agreement ahead of time that the issue of freedom of faith wouldn't be part of the parliamentary debate so that no one could use it as an argument to deflect from what is basically abuse. No face can legitimate such abuse. And we succeed to make those institutions say that before the debate. So there were no debate on freedom of of speech and freedom of of faith or uh, individual uh, freedom because this is abuse. And we knew we had to do this job before because we, we could see the debate in other countries. In fact, mainly in the U.S., we are linked with Born Perfect, the U.S. American organization that is campaigning against conversion therapy and they gave us very precious advice that we followed. It's interesting getting advice from the US, I guess, not to make their mistakes. Mm. Um, So Bert was caught up in this because of his family's Catholic faith. 
Um, we hear a lot about religious groups trying to straighten out gay people, as it were, but um, there are others who do this too, right? Yeah, the lawmakers identified three types of conversion therapy in France. There are the religious groups, as we've been hearing, often fundamentalist or evangelical groups who isolate individuals and then use a combination of prayers, discussion, and sometimes exorcism to try and do the converting. But then there's also more medical forms, therapeutic forms. They use hormonal therapy, chemical and electroshock aversion therapy. Mm. There have been recent cases of of, uh, of electroshock being used here in France. And then there's what they call the societal form, if you like, which could include pressure from within the family to convert to heterosexuality using maybe forced marriage, for example, or in extreme cases, corrective rape. Mm. And you have to think maybe, Sarah, when you're in a very homophobic family environment, it can end up pushing you to seek out conversion therapy yourself. Yeah. Of course, it's difficult to get figures on all of this because it isn't yet a, a crime. But the most widespread and publicised form in France is the one practised via religious groups. So so the bills passed unanimously in Parliament. Is it likely to become law after the Senate? Well, anything could happen, Sarah, but Bert at least is convinced the government is 100% behind it. Both the health and equality ministers have spoken out very strongly against conversion therapy. The government would like to see it passed before their term of office runs out, and that means by February, because elections coming up in April means everything's got to be wound up in Parliament a bit earlier. So that doesn't leave very much time. It will be a strong symbol if it does get through, though, because here in Europe, Germany and Malta are the only two two countries to have legislation on this and the French law would go much further than they already have done because it would recognise both child and adult victims. So it would make France a bit of a trailblazer in this field. Cette école, vous le savez, a été créée en 1945 pour préparer de jeunes fonctionnaires aux carrières des grands corps de l'État. Le concours de cette école est particulièrement difficile. Cette école est pour des questions administratives, l'analogue de Polytechnique pour les questions scientifiques. So Alison, he's talking here about ENA, the École Nationale d'Administration. Yeah, the National Administration School uh, that trains up senior civil servants in France. Yeah, yeah, and politicians. Several presidents have come out of ENA, the mm -hmm. past eight prime ministers. ENA graduates, they're called Inach can also be found throughout the business world in France. Well, the school was born 76 years ago this week on October 9th, 1945. Just at the end of the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. A project put forward by Charles de Gaulle to mm. rebuild France, which, you know, the Vichy regime had collaborated with the Nazis. There were a lot of institutions to rebuild. The aim of the school was to find people from all walks of life to run France. They'd be admitted through entrance exams. Jobs would be given on merit rather than personal connections and, and wealth. Hmm. So breaking the cycle of elites, hiring elites mm -hmm. at long last. Yeah, yeah. And, and it worked at first. Um, in the 1950s, about 45% of students came from the more privileged classes. That has now increased to 70%. Mm. That was in 2014. Ina is now known as the school that continues the elite in France. Yeah, it's become something of a club for the yeah, middle, upper classes. Mm. Very, very masculine, mostly yeah. men there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And though, it's on its way out. Mm. Yeah, I do remember 
President Emmanuel Macron making this big promise uh, that he would get rid of it a couple of years ago, all in the name of more meritocracy. Yeah, yeah, it was a bold statement. You know, he too is a product of Inna. He's an Inak. And he made the announcement after, you remember, the Yellow Vest protests, which became very targeted towards the elite, towards him in particular, but definitely a protest against inequality in France, you know, pointing at government officials who are out of touch with regular people. But as these announcements often turn out, the school is actually not going to be disappearing. Hmm. <laughs> this April, Macron announced that Inna isn't going to be abolished, but it will be reformed. Yeah, he loves reform, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I guess Mr. he's... Mr. Reform. Mr. Reform. He's striking a happy medium, I guess, en même temps, ah, as oui. it were. <laughs> anyway, as of January 1st, 2022, Inna will become the Institut du Service Public, or the Public Service Institute. So Inna becomes ISP. <laughs> ISP, yeah. <laughs> ISP, yeah. A name change. Yeah, a name change, but also a few other changes. So it will still be an elite school. It will recruit students from the Grande École, and there'll be tough entrance exams. A program to encourage students from disadvantaged areas to get into the prep courses that would put them on track to take the entrance exam will continue, though. The entrance exams will be updated, you know, asking a little bit less esoteric knowledge in order to pass. Mm -hmm. There will be curriculum changes, and most importantly, Job placements afterwards will change. So graduates will have to take at least two jobs outside of Paris hmm. to get on-the-ground experience before they take up their high-level positions in Paris. And promotions will no longer be based on the length of experience, but on their performance and their willingness to move around the country. Wow. So it all sounds very interesting. But, you know, concretely, how much will it change? Hard to tell, of course. I mean, the changes have upset current INA students and alumni, so perhaps it will be mm -hmm. big. Um, they say that these job placements based on performance could affect the independence of civil servants. You know, the way you're promoted, you know, it's not the same and they're not used to it. It's not just based on merit, whatever that means. Um, unclear, of course, if that's just sour grapes. But the real issue, of course, is to change this whole culture of of conformity. Inna is really known as, as reproducing a certain idea of how France is. Um, and one of the big parts of the training is internships. One researcher actually says these internships are a bourgeoisie test to see how well you conform, um, particularly applicable to women who are expected to dress and act in certain ways. Of course, if you don't conform, you risk not getting the best job placements, which is the whole point of going through the process in the first place. So how much this new institute will be in a, by another name remains to be seen. Quand on fume du crack, on sait plus très bien ce qu'on fait. Crack maniaque, panique, sept ans de nique, putain de micmac. Ta gueule en brade à Stalingrad Sur le tarmac, mec et mac Trinque et traque, braque et troc Des météores So Alison, maybe you've heard about crack in Paris These open-air sites where people are using and dealing out in plain sight Of course, yeah, there are lots of stories I've seen it as well, but there are lots of stories about people smoking in public And of course there's violence around there as well Yeah, erratic behavior, especially when people are looking for a fix It's making life hell for people who live around them um, In the northeast of Paris in particular Crack has been in Paris since the late 80s Since it arrived in mainland France from Guyana and the French Caribbean 
And that was all part of the crack crisis that we talked about yeah, in the in the 1980s. And in fact, it was all over the world. Yeah, yeah. And there were efforts in the early 2000s here in France to clean things up, dismantling dealer networks. But, you know, the addicts remain. They didn't go away. They're just less visible. They're set underground, you might say. And today, as the northeast of Paris is gentrifying, housing estates and squats where the addicts were living are being torn down. They're being pushed out into the open again. And it also seems to be spreading outside of Paris. There are now reports of outdoor crack users in cities like Bordeaux and Lille. One of the reasons also is that cocaine is getting cheaper in France. And crack is cocaine that's cut with other substances like baking soda and gives you a cheap, quick high. Mm. So is this the beginning of another epidemic? Well, the numbers of users remains relatively small. There are an estimated 40 to 44,000 crack smokers in France, some 13,000 of them in the Paris area. And, you know, not all of these are on the street. The vast majority consume their drugs at home. They actually cook or cut the cocaine themselves. But the people we're talking about, the most visible, they're not only addicts, they're also homeless, jobless, often mentally ill. You know, we're talking a few hundred people who are consuming and living outside in northern Paris, and, and they draw the dealers to them, you know, are looking to sell the hits. Mm. Until 2019, they were gathered in a very particular area known as the Colline de Crac, the Crack Hill on the edge of the city. Police shut that down, though. People moved around farther into town from one plaza or park to another. Users following dealers, dealers following users. And every few weeks now we hear about how the police have displaced the group somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and most recently they've moved them to a park. I mean, really a strip of land on the border with the city of Pantin, right by an exit lane of the Périphérique Ring Road around Paris. It's not far from where I live. And the ambiance is grim. The people here are run down. They're wearing ripped and dirty clothes. And closer in, the whole area smells of urine. There's garbage everywhere. People are sleeping next to rats here, says Majid, who's a crack user. He has kids at home, but comes to where the dealers are to get his fix. He says he understands why people who live around the area are fed up. Sincerely, I'm full. But it's not our fault. We're going there where the I pity them, but it's not our fault, he says. We go where the product is. Dealers and users are here together. It's hard to tell who's who, because crack is so cheap to make. Dealers are small-time. They cut it at home, sell it for 15 or 20 euros a pop, and if they get caught, they pass themselves off as users. Besides the dirt and the smell, there are also security concerns. Crack users can get violent if they don't have enough money to buy their next fix. On subit déjà avec ce qui se passe, les casses des voitures, les vols, les arrachages de sac à main. On se bat pour le quartier. We're suffering. They're breaking into cars, stealing bags, says Mohamed, who works in the market near the latest encampment in Pantin. We're fighting for the neighborhood and businesses. Everyone's leaving. Residents have been protesting against moving the attics here, as did residents around where they were previously. Marie, who has three children and lives near Gare du Nord, another focal point for drug users, says it's become unbearable. Voir un homme cul nu en train de hurler euh, en pleine rue à 16h30 à la sortie d'école parce qu'il est en manque. Seeing a naked man yelling in the afternoon when school is getting out because he's in withdrawal or someone defecating on the street. Is that a sight for children or for me, she says. These people are sick. We should be treating them. She does have a point. Shouldn't they be treated? Absolutely, yeah. But how? I mean, that's the big question. Crack is extremely addictive. There are no substitutions like methadone for heroin. And 
there are disagreements as to how to approach the addicts. Are they victims in need of medical treatment? Are they criminals to be punished? France's drug policy, based on a law from 1970, says they're both. The law is one of the most repressive against drug users in Europe and makes drug use punishable with prison time, except you get out of it if somebody agrees to go into treatment. But the people who've been dealing with addicts say that this kind of coercive treatment doesn't work. There is a move towards risk reduction, mm -hmm. isn't there? So not insisting on stopping drug use, but just cutting down on the risks involved overall. Yeah, yeah. The approach developed in the 1990s in the face of the AIDS crisis, you know, to get drug users to use clean needles to stop the spread of disease. So the idea of reducing risk for the users, but also for the people around them. Paris put in place a crack plan in 2019, devoting 9 million euros to housing, uh, you know, homeless crack users and social services for them, try to get them off the streets. Its success has been limited, though, because there is a lack of follow-up support. And, you know, really, there's no quick fix for this problem. In 2016, France passed an exception to its drugs law to allow an experiment with drug consumption rooms, as they're called. It's modeled on what's been done for decades in Switzerland and Germany. One of these rooms open in Strasbourg, another in Paris. And Alison, you visited the Paris one, right, near near Gautineau. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I remember it well. Uh, it's a well, very clean, remarkable place that you can go and consume drugs, uh, inject heroin, smoke crack. It's all, you know... It's just the opposite of sordid, mm -hmm. you know, clean material, needles, pipes and a medical team, doctors, nurses who are there to give you support and information about how maybe you can get off. Yeah, yeah. The, the results have been positive. The medical workers say this is pretty much the only way to get certain people into treatment to start getting off the drugs because crack addicts are not exactly lining up to get clean. Mm. These consumption rooms are a first step, basically let people rest, consume safely, and then they can start thinking about treatment. Elisabeth Avril, who is a doctor and the director of the Gaia Association that runs the drug consumption room in Paris, she says society has to accept that drug users exist and they won't all be able to kick their habits. Tous ces gens doivent bien quand même imaginer que dans leur arrondissement, il y a plein de consommateurs de drogue, mais ils consomment chez eux. People must realize there are drug users everywhere, she says, but they're consuming at home, so we need to give them a home to consume there. Drug consumption rooms have proven themselves effective. Ces dispositifs là ont montré leur preuve dans d'autres pays. Quand on va à Rotterdam ou Amsterdam, il y a 25 ans, il y avait In the Netherlands 25 years ago there were scenes like in Paris, she says. Now there are none. People still consume drugs though. We need to support people so there's less damage for them and others. But a lot of people do oppose these drug consumption rooms, don't they, Sarah? Yeah, yeah. No one wants them near yeah. where they live. Yeah. I mean, even though they do have to be where the drug users are. So it's a tricky situation. Other opponents see drug consumption rooms as enabling the problem, you know, accepting drug use. They say treatment first. But mm. if you get people into treatment, even if you manage to do that, this population, homeless, precarious, is very vulnerable to relapse. Sociologist Marie-Joffrey Roustide, who's interviewed many drug users for studies for the French National Institute of Health and Medical Research in CIRM, says even clean, these people are still homeless, still jobless. Vivre dans l'espace public amène à consommer plus. Living in public pushes you to consume more, she says, because you have to bear life on the street. When users go to consumption rooms and risk reduction sites, they'll increase their chance of getting treatment or quitting by 30%, she says. The problem in France is that there's a national opposition. The interior minister has chosen to 
clamp down on users, whereas this goes completely counter to what's being done internationally. She brings up a very valid point, doesn't she? The, there are politics at play here. Absolutely. So the Interior Minister, Gérard Darmanin, has taken a very hardline approach recently, dismantling these camps, criticizing aid groups coming to help feed the addicts, saying they're just making the problem worse. This runs counter to what Health Minister Olivier Véran, who's a doctor and a former NP, has said. He was actually on the commission that was studying this Strasbourg drug consumption room, and he says that is the way forward. So already you have disagreement within the government, and on top of that, you have disagreement between the government, national government, and the city. Véran has thrown the responsibility back to the city of Paris. The government, he says, has provided the funding. It's now up to Paris to put these rooms into place. So as politicians disagree and toss around responsibility, drug addicts and the people living around them continue to suffer. Pawns in the process. And that's it for this edition of Spotlight on France. The episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. We'd love to hear from you, listeners. Please send us comments about the episode or anything else. Um, Spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. And Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And, well, why not throw in a review? <laughs> <laughs> while you're at it yeah. you have time yeah it would help it would help to gather people find the podcast and, and get to know us um, we'll be back in two weeks on Thursday October the 21st bye Alison bye bye Sarah bye